Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to health care, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit UH1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. So, remember me mentioning the podcast awards a couple times over the last few months, asking for your votes and support? Well, all of your kindness and effort has paid off. Tales to Terrify has clinched the top spot as Fiction Podcast of the Year, and I honestly cannot thank you all enough. Without you, Children of the night, none of this would be possible. And even if it was, it wouldn't be half as fun. On behalf of the entire team, thank you to our incredible, loyal listeners, authors, and voice actors for giving Tales to Terrify this incredible honor. If you'd like to check out the full roster of final nominees, as well as the winners in other categories, visit podcastawards.com. This week, 
Our deepest, darkest thanks goes out to our newest patron, Devin Earls. Thank you for binding your dark spirit to our cause, Devin. We're truly thankful for the generous support. If you'd like to join Devin and the other children of the night behind the veil, patreon.com slash tales to terrify is the place to be. Head on over and scrawl your name on the wall. And, as I mentioned last week, we've got some new swag on the way, and I'd love to be able to share it with as many of you as possible. Uh, but now, the real reason why you all came here tonight. Let's get on with some fiction, shall we? Our first story for the evening comes from Caleb Stevens. Caleb Stevens is a dark fiction author writing from somewhere in the Colorado mountains. His short stories have appeared in multiple publications and podcasts, including Howl Society Press, Metastellar, The Dread Machine, Nocturnal Transmissions, and more. His story, The Wallpaper Man, is forthcoming as a short film from Falconer Film and Media. You can learn more at calebstevensauthor.com and follow him on Twitter at cstevensauthor. Children of the Night, join me. For Caleb Stevens, You Always Wanted a Garden, a Tales to Terrify original. You always wanted a garden. Nothing big, mind you. Just a bed out back with enough room for some carrots and snow peas, and a stalk or two of corn. You talked about it all the time, how you spent your childhood elbow to elbow with your mother, digging in the soil of your youth. You wanted to do the same for our son, to teach him the simple joy of hard work and spending time with those you love. You imagine the look on his face as he bit into the first sun-warm strawberry of the season, the way he'd smile. It wasn't a big ask, your garden. I wanted it too. But life got in the way. A doctor appointment here, a flat tire there, a trip to the vet with the dog. Something always seemed more pressing. Eventually, it became our inside joke. I'd ask to go on a hunting trip with the guys or spend the weekend fly fishing, and you'd say, Sure, just as soon as you finish the garden. We'd share a laugh, and then you'd smirk and roll your eyes at the door. Go on, get out of here. A week after Brandon turned six, I decided to surprise you. You'd be back from your jog any minute now, I told him. We'd need to hurry. He was so excited as we unloaded the supplies from the truck and covered them in the checkered tablecloth you brought on our picnics. I set a bottle of your favorite Pinot on top, along with two wine glasses, and pictured how your eyebrows would rise when you returned from your run. You never came home, 
Another jogger found you collapsed beneath a strand of burr oak with your eyes wide open. An arterial septal defect, your doctor told me. A hole in your heart. One neither of us knew was there. Your parents wanted to bury you, but I wouldn't let them. You'd made me promise as much. That night we'd spent in the Catskills, staring at the stars. It was a beautiful thing to return to nature, you said. The cycle of life. Ashes to ashes, dust to dust, and all of that. It took a year before I gathered the courage to move the pile of wood and mulch and heavy plastic sheeting to the backyard. It sat on the front lawn and burned a yellow square into the grass. The HOA wrote me a letter after letter. Move it, or we'll fine you. We'll lean your house. I couldn't. I fell apart every time I tried. Whenever I looked at it, all I could think about was you. How I'd failed. You. You were everything to me, and I put everything else first. I started on your garden today. Brandon helped. You should have seen the way his eyes lit up when we finished the box, the way he bit his lower lip and tugged on his ear. He reminded me so much of you in that moment. It made me wonder if you were there, hidden somewhere, inside of him, looking back with your mannerisms baked into the coils and strands of his DNA. It's just like Mama always wanted, he said. Don't you think? Uh Uh-huh. I kept my gaze low as I raked the soil. I didn't want him to see my tears. It's been a month and nothing will grow, Even the tomato vines I brought home from the nursery are wilting. I checked the pH. I scattered the limestone and sulfur just like the blue-haired woman in the checkout line told me to, with a hand spreader, carefully measuring out the cups. I installed drip lines with a pole and a fake owl perched on top to make sure the rabbits weren't getting at the seeds. Nothing worked. It's like the earth is poisoned. Like it knows all of this is much too late. I brought you with me this morning. I carried you to the garden along with an Adirondack and sat there, staring at all that empty brown soil. I held you in my lap, and the only urn I could find that seemed to suit you, a light blue cornflower ceramic stamped in doves. Something about the color reminded me of Miller Pond, where I saw you for the first time, sitting on the bench next to the water. When I asked what you were reading, you told me, but I didn't hear a word. I was lost in the way you tilted your head, in the way you smiled. I love that smile. It was like you were giving me a little peek at the sun. It became a ritual, this thing. Just you and me, sitting in our chair beside your garden. I sip my coffee, and we talk. Sometimes about the weather sometimes about other things, like the way I can't seem to function at work anymore or keep the house organized. How, these days, I drink more than I should. But mostly, I talk about Brandon. He's broken without you here. There's no light left in his eyes. He seems older than six and sadder by far, sadder than a child his age has any right to be. 
He needs you now more than ever. And all I have to give him is me. It's not nearly enough. We spread your ashes this evening. I hadn't planned to, it just happened. We were outside, you and me, watching the sunset when Brandon tugged on my sleeve. Can I hold Mama? Sure, but be gentle, I told him. He cradled you in his arms like a baby. He looked at you like he was holding his heart. I knew then he would never heal with you here. He would never move on. We poured you into the garden together, just the two of us, watch you mixed with all the dark, rich earth. She'll love it here, Brendan whispered when we were done. I just know she will. And when he said it, I knew he was right. Daddy, quick, come look, something's growing. Brandon said it the next morning, standing in the kitchen doorway with his cheeks puffing red. And something was growing, but not what I expected. No peppers budding green, no fruit taking shape. It was something else. An elegant olive green vine twined around the pole, thick with bunches of creamy white blossoms. It didn't make sense for something like that to grow overnight. It was too fully formed too exquisite. I stared at it for hours. I swore I saw it move. Over the next several days you took shape. Your torso formed first, followed by a face of intricately woven stems. I watched it in wonder as your ocean-colored eyes flowered beneath a mane of mandarin blossoms. Then came your cheekbones, perfectly delicate, your ears and jaw and neck, it left me breathless. I slept outside. At times it was hard to see you through my tears, but I could smell you, taste you, lavender and mint and something close to honey. Your hands formed last, your fingers reaching for me, extending in a way that made me want to take them in mine. But I couldn't. I was afraid you'd fall apart at my touch. Brandon took them instead. He slipped past while I slept. I never heard a sound. When I woke, there wasn't much human left of him. Only a few slivers of freckle-covered skin peeking out from among the vines. His fingers were out and reaching towards me in a mirror of yours. His lips curved in a strawberry-bloom smile. He looked happy in a way I hadn't seen since the day you died. He looked at peace. I sat there all day in my chair, staring at the two of you, wondering if I had the strength to take your hand. What would happen? What would I become? You offered no answer to save a look, your eyes as blue as the day you died, formed in petals, your mouth outlined in pale pink buds. At dusk, I stood and stared out at the pastel sky at the mountains beneath glowing on the horizon in warm purple imprints. I'm not sure I'd ever see a sight so stunning. And I never wanted to again, I decided, unless it was with you. So it was with a full heart that I reached out and took your hand.
That was Caleb Stevens' You Always Wanted a Garden, is read by Seth Williams. Seth Williams is a narrator who has read for Far-Fetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and Tales to Terrify, where he currently volunteers as editor. When not day-jobbing, he enjoys listening to fiction podcasts and audio drama. He shares his life with an amazing partner, dog, and a cat. Thank you, Seth. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right. Over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash results to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash results. Terms and conditions apply. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard Fixed Indemnity Insurance Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at UH1.com. Quality sleep is essential for boosting energy, recovery, and well-being. So, take your sleep to the next level with Sleep Number. With a Sleep Number smart bed, you can individualize your comfort level and enjoy a better sleep night after night. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599, a saving of $300, only for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Our second tale tonight comes from Santiago Ejemeno. Santiago Ejemeno is a Spanish genre writer who has published several novellas and collections, mainly horror literature. His work has been translated to English, Japanese, and French. His last book published in English is Umbria by Independent Legions Publishing. Listen with me, children of the night, to Santiago Ejemeno's Intellectual Property, first published in Spanish in the collection Bebas Yogando con Cuchillos in 2008, and in English and French in Dark Little Dreams 2014. So what do you think? asked Lydia, 
smiling and holding an unlit cigarette between her left-hand fingers. She'd told me her name just a few minutes earlier, as if by doing so she created an indestructible bond between us, an intimate link that would allow her to fearlessly open up her heart to me, setting trivial talk aside. For over an hour I had listened to her monologue in complete silence, paying attention to her words and gestures, not feeling the least desire to know her name. For her, the excitement of talking to a stranger had intensified to the point of becoming unbearable, and she'd been dragged into confessing her secret as if giving away a priceless treasure. For a few instants I wondered whether it was her real name or she was offering me an invention. I could find no logical reason for her to deceive me. She wanted to share with me something more than simple words, and confessing her name was a necessary preamble. I guess there's not much I can say, I answered. We were sitting next to the stage, at a battered, dark, wooden low table. A young waitress had placed us together with arbitrary criterion, ignorant of our relationship. Prosaic reality told me that the only reason we met was because we had both bought our tickets too late. Lydia was pretty, or at least there was a shine in her eyes, and she had one of those smiles that make you believe you made more than a few mistakes in life. She spoke endlessly, and that was exactly what I was after. Some banal conversation to start with, certain confidences later on, and the sharing of intimate thoughts at the end. We would not get much further. When we got up from the table, we would both go our separate ways, and our lives would never cross again. And even if they did, it was quite probable that she wouldn't remember me. I, however, could never forget her. I know, said Lydia, lighting her cigarette with an elephant-shaped lighter a curio a workmate had given her as a gift. It happened a long time ago. I've almost forgotten it. I certainly hope the guy is already dead. In fact, for weeks I prayed that he would have a horrible accident. I smiled and signaled the waitress over. We'll have the same, please, I said, pointing to our empty glasses. Since I was a kid, people would use me as their confessor. My classmates would share with me their most intimate secrets. Teachers would reveal to me details of their everyday lives that I had no wish to know. For many years I thought about it, trying to understand why strangers approached me just so they could load their intimate details into my ears. Perhaps it was because of my shyness, my silences, my attentive expression. I didn't know. Somehow my aspect, my presence, led them to trust me and open up their heart to me, just as Lydia had. On the stage, the band members were giving the final tests to their instruments and sound equipment. They chatted among them, took swigs of their beer, pointed at the spotlights while protecting their eyes with the palms of their hands. I'd been going to the Thursday show for over three months. The venue was now a second home to me. This was the first time I shared my table with a stranger. Normally I lingered at the bar, slowly drinking my black pint of beer while enjoying the show. Now, the decision to sit at a table had provided me with this unexpected pleasure. The waitress served our drinks just as the lights were being dimmed. What do you think I should have done? asked Lydia, sipping her vodka and orange. What you did was the right thing, Lydia, I said, pronouncing her name, relishing the feeling reflected on her face when she heard it from my lips. She smiled and lowered her eyes. After the drummer presented the band members one by one, the musicians started playing their improvised jazz. 
We listened to the first song in silence for a few minutes, enjoying the music. Lydia soon felt the need to retake the conversation. So, what did you say you did? Journalism? she asked. No, I answered. I'm a writer. The band dove into an especially lively song. They couldn't help tapping my foot to the beat. They played well. The syncopated movements of the bassist blew the audience away. A row of sincere applause followed, interrupted by the first notes of a new song. A writer? How interesting, said Lydia. But I could read a certain disappointment in her eyes. She would have preferred a journalist. Or else a North American spy stranded in this country, involved in an obscure case of political corruption and waiting for a group of brave marines to rescue him. I regretted not having impressed her. Somehow, even though I knew it was not what I wanted from her, I felt attracted by how she moved and by the way she lowered her eyes. She wasn't really that pretty, but her body exhaled an ineffable something that made her an attractive woman. It was probably her story, the anecdote she narrated like a mantra. People always attracted me after I'd listened to their story. Upon arriving at the venue, I'd dropped my wedding ring into my pocket. Perhaps I was trying to make up for lost time, trying to feel again what my wife no longer made me feel. Yes, I said, writer, short stories especially. Novels don't attract me. They require too much attention. You've never written a novel? I took a sip from my drink and applauded at the end of the song. One, I answered. Afterwards, I lost interest. It was too autobiographical. I prefer to keep things short and sweet. She smiled. Many people react like that to cliches used at the right moments. I had the impression that she didn't understand anything I was telling her, but that didn't bother me at all. I'd already listened to her story, and the rest had no importance. Did it sell well? she asked. The musicians were saying goodbye in the midst of applause. The evening was coming to an end. I started clapping, and Lydia did the same. We looked at each other, smiling. We'd both got what we wanted. I stood up and gestured to her to remain sitting. I have to go. You'd better stay, I said. I have your number. I'll call you tomorrow. Her eyes said yes, almost imploringly. Oh, and about the novel. I only wrote it. I never said I published it. She made a noise similar to a guffaw and bid me farewell with a ridiculous shake of her hand. By the way, she shouted as I was leaving the place, what the hell were we talking about before? It was a sweltering night outside. The streetlights had just been turned on, luring moths out of their hiding places. The clammy atmosphere turned the city into an oil painting about to melt. I walked a few meters toward the nearest bus stop. A couple passed me in a flash. I asked myself what their story was. I wondered if they wished to tell it to me. A group of teen boys smoked and joked around under the bus stop marquee. I kept to the side, trying not to listen to their conversations. I already had my story. I didn't need another one. I thought about Lydia. Would she ever read her tale, her little vital anecdote, as one of my stories? Perhaps she'd never bought a book in her life, nor felt any interest in doing so. I hadn't told her my name, so she would not be prowling her neighborhood bookstores or the nearest department store searching for my books. No, 
Her little story would end up being part of some forgotten anthology on the shelves of an old bookstore, and she would never hear about it. Other readers, eager for some small amusement to fill the empty shell of their everyday life, would buy the book and plunge into its small world of deceptions, sharing the true pain inside it, making it theirs for a few minutes. They would turn Lydia's loss into something new, unique, personal and indivisible, and different for each reader. The bus came, a blurry crimson stain shredded by the lights from other vehicles. It didn't stop. The teens booed and screamed as the driver, with a well-rehearsed gesture, shrugged his shoulders. As the bus took a turn at the roundabout ahead, we discovered that it was out of service. As we waited, two people joined the group. An old woman, who stared at the ground while compulsively twisting her fingers, and a serious-looking man reading a book that was bound in newspaper. Was he ashamed of what he was reading? Did he, perhaps, prefer not to share it with anyone? As a writer, both options offended me. I heard the faraway rumor of an ambulance siren. It was a hot night, perfect for drinking in excess. A few minutes passed, as slow as the pages of a particularly boring novel. Then, in the midst of the teen's racket, a girl pointed at the street. Another bus was approaching. I told myself it would have been more intelligent to take a taxi. The idea of a new story wandered around my head and had comfortably settled into my memory. It would not be completely mine until I had transcribed it. The feeling of sharing a private story, a secret, with a woman whose name I could hardly remember anymore, made me feel uncomfortable. I needed it to be mine, only mine so I could transmit it in all truthfulness to my readers. That's what intellectual property was all about. The bus stopped and opened its doors, and we all climbed inside. I took a seat behind the old woman, who was calmer now. The teen boys took the back seats, trying to chat up two pale-faced girls dressed in black who ignored them. I looked at the face of my wristwatch. It was past 11.30 p.m. The air conditioning inside the bus helped me to relax and I mentally reviewed the information stored in my head. I still had a few stops ahead of me and nothing better to do. Lydia had married very young because of an unexpected pregnancy. As a preamble, it was too common, too cliché. But then she'd told me about her infidelity. It wasn't surprising, seeing what her life had been like. But at least she'd cheated on her husband with his own sister. That would be enticing enough for most readers. Lesbian adultery her husband abusing her when she decided to abandon him, a final fight involving a knife. There was no question about it. I could sell the story to any of the magazines I worked for. It was a story you could read in one sitting and then forget a few hours later, just as Lydia would no doubt forget her own story that same night. As in previous occasions, I felt the first signs of guilt in the form of a stabbing pain in the back of my neck. But it was gone in an instant. I'd already accepted my punishment for the gift I'd been given and there was no point in regretting it before I began a new story. I got home sometime after midnight. It had started to rain, which increased the stifling atmosphere that the first days of summer had brought along. I crossed the entrance and, before calling the elevator, fumbled for my wedding ring inside my shirt pocket and placed it on my finger. My wife wouldn't be able to tell the difference, but I would feel more comfortable wearing the ring at home. I climbed into the elevator and got off one floor below mine, as usual. Walking up the last flight of stairs to my flat was part of my therapy, of my need to hold on to the reality that slipped through my fingers whenever I sat in front of my typewriter. 
I remembered a conversation with another writer, a man who'd published a few novels in a reduced literary sector, but still enjoyed a certain acknowledgement from a particular audience. He'd read some of my short stories and felt they were full of commonplace images that transmitted life. We shared a coffee and happily chatted about it. I paid polite attention to his praise and criticism, and answered his cliché questions with monosyllables and an occasional wisecrack. Where did I get my inspiration? From life itself, and from the people that surround me. A typical answer, yes, but it was an honest one. However, he was surprised to know that, at this computer age, I still use my old Olivetti Lexicon 80, the typewriter my father gave me as a gift when I was seven. Nostalgia or need? he asked me with a knowing smile. I smiled back, making an intentioned pause for dramatic effect, and sipped my coffee. We were actors in a play, an improvised comedy, and for some precious seconds I was the absolute protagonist. Is there a difference? I answered, and he gave me a smiling look of complicity, as if he really understood what we were talking about and we really did share the secret of literary creation. I placed the key in the keyhole and paid attention to the distinctive crack of the door as it opened. The woman's story vibrated inside my mind, begging to be put down on paper. I walked inside and softly shut the door. I'd left the ceiling fan on, and a fresh breeze glided through the hallway like a myriad flying insects fluttering through the night. I'm home, I said out loud. The kitchen lights were on. I considered preparing some dinner after I had transcribed the story. Right now it was the story I had to give all my time to before it lost its strength. I went into the bedroom, turned on the light, and sat across from the typewriter. Before I left, I was convinced I would come back with enough material for another short story, so I'd removed the protective cover and placed a blank sheet of paper in it. I started to type. At first I hesitated, as I always did when facing a blank sheet, but soon the words became sentences, the sentences paragraphs, and the anecdote of the woman I'd met in the bar materialized like a painting slowly spreading over a canvas. The fragmented images dwelling inside my mind became black on white at the mechanic rhythm whispered by the typewriter keys. I knew that later on, as usual, I'd have to correct some typos and polish some sentences here and there, but the first draft would be practically the definitive version that would be published. When I finished, after having changed the paper six times, I was exhausted but satisfied. Now the story was totally mine. It was my property. I could do whatever I wanted with it. I grabbed the paper sheets, stood up, and went to the kitchen. I found a bottle of orange juice and two apples inside the refrigerator. I poured myself a glass of juice, sat at one of the stools I'd bought the previous week at a neighborhood shop, and ate the apples while revising the story on the kitchen top. I found the errors I expected. Mere trifles, the result of hurried typing. Nothing serious. Now that the story was no longer inside my mind, nor in the mind of the woman who'd told it to me. I was euphoric. I thought of celebrating it with a drink, but my more responsible side refused. I remembered the problems that alcohol had brought me in the past, the memory lapses that caused stories to be lost and pages to remain blank. Truth be told, it had also helped me to discover my potential as a writer, my gift for transmitting ideas to millions of readers, but the price I'd had to pay was high. Too high. I went back to the bedroom and sat at the foot of the bed. 
I placed the papers aside and looked at the woman lying on the bedsheet. I'd tied her wrists and ankles with flexible cords, attaching them to metal loops I'd previously nailed to the carpeted floor. Every morning I tended to the wounds she inflicted on herself while trying to break free, shaking from side to side like a caged animal. Using an alcohol-soaked gauze, I would softly clean her skin, avoiding her fingernails, avoiding her stare. Sometimes I attempted to initiate a conversation. Sometimes. The woman lifted her head and looked at me. There was no trace of sanity left in her wild eyes, in the impossible sneer of her mouth, and the thick veins that protruded under the white skin of her neck. She grunted something incomprehensible while a fine line of drool slid down her mouth. She flailed her arms and legs in a final attempt to grab me. She couldn't. After a few seconds, she calmed down and lay still again, waiting. A nauseating smell filled the room, a smell I hadn't noticed while I was typing away, but which now claimed its own space inside my head. You soiled yourself again, didn't you? I whispered, and she shook her head spasmodically. I would have to wash the bedsheets and hang them out to dry again, exposing them to the curious attention of the neighbors who kept asking me about my wife. All the stories I'd made up to justify her sudden disappearance had proven useless. It was funny. No one believed my fictions, but my short stories, real, complete stories, were usually taken for the inventions of a writer. The woman lying on the bed grunted again and tried to sit up. Avoiding her contact, I leaned over, turned on the night lamp, and read the cover on a pile of papers bound in wire comb that lay on the night table. Marta, I muttered, remembering my wife's name. The woman turned her face towards me. In the configuration of her face bones, so sharp they looked like they were going to pierce the skin at any moment, I could still see lost traces of what she had once meant to me. I could still remember her sweet voice against my ear, telling me her little secrets, sharing her life with me. I held the book between my hands and looked at her. Everything she had ever been was there in my hands, in a hundred yellowish paper sheets badly held together. Marta, I repeated, but she could not understand my words. I had forgotten so many things. The perfume of her skin, the joy in her eyes, stale cliches to hold on to a reality that disintegrated in front of my own eyes, and the stench of her own feces. I never understood why she didn't stop, why she continued to tell me everything even though she knew what she was losing. I think that, at the end, she understood it was not senile dementia nor Alzheimer's disease. At the end, she understood that, for some unexplainable reason, all her memories were erased instants after she told them to me, after my endless hours at the typewriter. Even when she read them, she was unable to associate them as her own. I suppose that, as every good writer, I had a muse. And as happens with every muse, her source of ideas was not eternal, and she had finally emptied herself out. Marta turned her head and vomited on the pillow. What did she eat today? I couldn't remember. I tried to keep her on a correct diet. For her. For the baby. Nervous, I caressed her bulging belly. She shook, trying to avoid the contact, and stared at me with her lost eyes. In that perturbed gesture, I perceived that if she could break free of her bindings, she would kill me with her own hands. That's what she had been reduced to. That's what she had become. 
an animal with primary instincts, with no recollection, no memories beyond basic needs. I had destroyed her as a person, and her destruction had birthed my masterpiece, my only novel. Oh, how I yearned to publish it. But, as I caressed her belly and felt my child move inside her, I knew I had to wait. I'd bought half a hundred books on pregnancy, and I was already an expert. I could deliver this child by C-section if necessary. It would present no difficulty. I doubted Marta would survive the operation, but she had already contributed significantly to my success. When I published the novel, I would definitely reach the fame that the short stories refused to give me. The novel would feed my ego. It would replenish me. I would never have to write again. At least, no more short stories. I was planning a part two, a sequel to my masterpiece. At a time when all consecrated authors revisited their old scenarios over and over again, it was almost compulsory to write a sequel. I was not thinking of a six-book saga, no. Just part two. My child would contribute to it by giving me the epilogue of the first part. Oh, God, how I wanted to listen to his first cry. And then transcribe it. That was Santiago Jimeno's Intellectual Property, as read by Anthony Babington. Anthony Babington is an aspiring voice actor who looks just slightly off from how he sounds. From his secret volcano lair in Minnesota, he narrates podcasts and leases his soul to corporate America. He has previously recorded for Far-Fetched Fables, Starship Sofa, and The Cursed Inn Podcast. He can be found on Twitter as at Aleph Baker. Thank you, Anthony. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Kathy Robinson and Amanda Gottfried, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks like ad-free and extended episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show that doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Stitcher, Podchaser, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Now you can share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch. TalesToTerrify.com merch 
will take you to our Tee Public store, where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs that's always growing, so check back often. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Borgenstern, Andrew Gibson, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we chill you to the bone with more Tales to Terrify. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.